Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. Thank you for joining us again for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. And I always appreciate the comments that I get. And by and large, it isn't because we have the most famous guests or we're tackling things that no one else ever talks about, but the comments I hear is it's appreciated that we have real, everyday uh, Christians who want to serve God talking about things that maybe don't normally get talked about in depth. And today's subject is the subject of grief. And is there a biblical way to grieve? Now, I had this idea as a result of a previous podcast where my co-host Charles Roberts and I were discussing the difference between being smart and being wise. And he made reference to an episode in his life that required biblical wisdom. And after we were done with the podcast, being the nosy person that I am, I asked him about it. And I thought that he and his wife, who are both guests today, and, and Charles still serves as a co-host today, um, will talk about the things that they learned because of an episode in their life that challenged them. Now, just to start off, grief takes a lot of forms. Grief can happen as a result of a disappointment, problems with a failed marriage or estranged children, death, whether it's a sudden death or uh, death after a prolonged illness, um, a loss of pregnancy before someone is born, and the death of an infant very soon after birth. So all of these things embody grief, and most people would understand that these things would produce grief. But what we want to talk about today is the difference between a faithless grief and a grief that's informed by Scripture. So Charles, thank you for agreeing to have this personal conversation, and I will let you introduce your wife. Well, you're quite welcome, Andrea, and it is our hope and prayer that uh, the subject matter will be of benefit to uh, our listeners, and um, I am joined, we are joined by uh, my wife, Michelle, of going on 36 years, and uh, we were married in 1985, and uh, we have been blessed with two children, but prior to that, we went through sort of a, a time of crisis with two previous pregnancies. And the details of that is sort of what we would talk about and, and that we, we lost two children to premature birth. And, you know, we talk about grief. And I think something that goes along with that is, is shock. You know, you can be shocked over a lot of different things, but certainly the things that bring up grief also involve um, the shocking loss of life sometimes in this case. Obviously, if someone is what we would call terminally ill and they pass away, that's not quite the same as someone dying under other types of circumstances. So when you're dealing with this, especially from a Christian standpoint, there are a couple of different things that come into play. And certainly the sorrow of, of loss in our case is, is one of the big ones. Okay. So Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I'm going to start with you. 
pregnancy and birth is experienced very differently for for a woman than for her husband, the child's father. Why don't you just give us a little bit of background of where you were, how old you were, how mature you were in the faith as you experienced not one, but two instances where your child died? Well, we were in seminary. My husband was studying um, at that time, I think he was thinking more in the line of being a university professor with a degree in theology. But we had left what I thought was a very uh, good life in North Carolina that we had to pursue his degree. And it was a real challenge. Um, a lot of things didn't go the way we thought. This was the first year of our seminary experience. And... Uh, it just been really tough. But someone had told us before we went to seminary, don't put off having a family because you just never know how long the process might take. People think, oh, I can just get pregnant and have a child and that it's on their timetable and it's not. So we had been encouraged, you know, if, if you're gonna have a family, don't wait until you're done with school because you never know how long that's gonna be. So um, we got pregnant uh, just we found out about Christmas that first year. I was in my upper 20s. We'd been married, I think, three or four years. I'd been a Christian pretty much my whole life, although I went through a real period of struggle and where I just laid it down because I didn't want what went with living a Christian life, and I walked away from the Lord. But in his grace and mercy, I couldn't walk away. He just kept drawing me back. But at that time, you know, I was really trusting in him. We were both trusting in him to work out the details, and we were excited. And week 18 of my pregnancy, which was going along, you know, fine, I started bleeding, went to the hospital, and the doctor said, it's just too late. There's nothing we can do. And uh, at that point, I had been involved in the pro-life movement for a number of years, so I knew a little bit about development of the baby and sort of what to expect. But, you know, I had to go through a regular delivery. The baby was born alive. It was a little boy. And uh, he died maybe 20 minutes, you know, after birth. So I'd like you to explain a little bit. And Charles, you chime in after she explains it because you mentioned the idea of shock. So 18 weeks into the pregnancy, you, you know, first time pregnant. So pregnancy is a new experience every day because you can't compare it to something else. What was your first reaction, Michelle, when the doctor said, there's nothing we can do? I mean, what did the doctor say to you to explain what was happening? Well, it was pretty obvious that it was a serious condition because I was bleeding quite heavily. So, you know, you just take it as it comes. I mean, we didn't really, like I said, even though I knew about the, the development of the baby in the womb, I still it wasn't clicking with me that I was going to have to go through labor and delivery. I mean, I don't know exactly what I was thinking was going to happen, but yeah, it, it was just a total shock. And after such a difficult year that we had in transition and moving from something that I was really happy with, with my life, going to this other strange 
environment, having to meet new people, having a job I didn't like, I mean, all these other things. And then the Lord says, no, this isn't going to happen the way you thought it's going to happen. Okay, Charles, now let me ask you this question. So clearly this wasn't happening to your body, but this was happening to your wife. And it's um, oftentimes where people neglect to consider what a husband's going through, even in labor. I laugh sometimes because I've been at births where the husbands are there. And yeah, all the emphasis is on mom, but quite frankly, dad is going through his own series of things physically, even though it's not the physical reaction or process of delivering the baby. So how long before Michelle actually delivered, did you find out that the the pregnancy probably wouldn't last? Was it immediate that she delivered or was it a period of days where you got a chance to hang out with this concept? The period of days scenario was with our second lost pregnancy, uh, the second child we lost because she lived a couple of days. But the first one that Michelle described, uh, we were pretty much told as she indicated when we got to the hospital that um, the baby was going to have to be born. There was nothing they could do to stop her from going into labor and delivery, but that he would be too immature physically to survive outside the womb. So did the delivery happen that day or did they say it was going to take its course? Yeah, it it was probably about, we were in the ER and then they transferred me probably about four or five hours. And I will say this, this might be helpful to somebody who's listening, but we had specifically chosen a hospital that was pro-life. Yeah. So when that all happened, I didn't have any question about the doctors you know, they were going to do whatever they they could. They were already committed to making sure that even a baby at that young was going to be treated like a human being. If I had gone to a hospital where they had done abortions, they might have been doing an abortion for a baby the same age in the room next door. How would I have any confidence that what they were telling me would be correct? So I think that that was a, a little important piece throughout our whole puzzle, this, this, these two pregnancies and with these two babies, that I had the confidence that at least the doctors understood that even at 18 weeks, at 20 weeks, we're talking about a human being who is value. So, and he was your human being. So that makes it even more important because now it moved out of theory and abstraction. And now this was right in your life happening. Yes. Correct. Well, and I, I, I want to add too that, you know, Michelle mentioned that before we left, uh, in this case, North Carolina and moved to Philadelphia uh, to go to seminary, I had had a meeting with one of the pastors of the church that we were associated with at the time, a man for whom I still have a great deal of respect. He's a, a brilliant guy, seminary president and all this sort of thing. And he was the one that said, listen, regardless of your pursuit of a call to ministry or theological education, the Lord first and foremost calls you to be a a husband and a father and to have a family. That's, you know, the creation mandate. And so we took that seriously. Uh, And as Michelle described within the first year, in spite of all the challenges, we became pregnant. So the fact that this happened created a real spiritual crisis that, um, you know, I think both of us had to deal with right away, not only the issue of losing a child, however immature outside the womb, 
you know, we lost a son, but also this theological question of like, well, wait a minute, you know, I'm, I'm being obedient to what this pastor said and that I agree, this is what the Lord has in mind for his people. Uh, what's up with this now? Right. I mean, that's sort of a generic way to put it, but that, that was a real struggle. All right. Before we go any further, what is the name you gave your son? We named him Andrew Knox, okay. K-N-O-X, Andrew Knox. Okay. So Andrew was born. Uh, did you, either of you, and you can each address this, did either of you ever feel that somehow or other you weren't being a good Christian if you were sad or you were angry or all the other emotions that at was attached to it? Was that part of the crisis that you described? I'd say absolutely. I mean, I had to, I've always been kind of a journalist on and off. And I think especially when I'm going through a hard time, being able to get my thoughts out of my head and on paper has been always very helpful. Um, and I went back because this has been now over 30 years. So I went back to reread through some of those things. And um, yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of anger sometimes because like I said, I felt like I was sacrificing a lot already to go to seminary and to do this thing that I, I knew God was calling us to do it, but I, I wasn't totally on board. You know, if I want to be honest, I, I knew it was the right thing, but I didn't like it, you mm -hmm. know? <laughs> and so then when this happened, it was like, Lord, I mean, how far are you going to push me? Am I just going to go over the edge and you don't care? I mean, so there was that. And then at the same time, it's like, no, your husband's studying theology. He might be a pastor. That's, you're not being a very good Christian. That's not super spiritual to feel right. that way. So there's definitely, you know, that being torn between what you think you should feel and think and knowing what you really should believe because you know God's word and you've been taught properly, but just struggling with that. And for me, through both of those losses, I think reading the Psalms was such an important thing because the Psalms give us God's words to talk back to him. And the Psalms are filled with all kinds of, you know, honest kind of in your gut. This is the way it is, Lord. You know, it's not all fairy dust and happy. Right. So Charles, I'll now turn my question to you. As a pastor, you no doubt that ex this experience, this first experience gave you a personal experiential way to deal with people who you encounter pastorally dealing with grief. But we never can forget that death is an enemy. The Bible talks about death as an enemy. So theologically speaking, it's not like death happens and we should have a smile on our face and say, hallelujah, isn't this great? We might say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, but we still view death as an enemy. Yes, and it really brings into sharp focus, I think, how we understand the idea that God is sovereign. And in the Reformed faith in particular, we use that phrase often. But I'm afraid that on the one hand, it becomes just an academic statement that we pride ourselves that we believe this doctrine, just like we believe two plus two equals four. But on the other hand, it also brings out the problem that Dr. Rushdoony often referred to as the, the sentimentality, uh, the pietistic way that uh, faith is often handled. And in this particular case, 
for myself, both as a husband, a father, a seminary student, I had to answer this question, well, are you really okay with God being sovereign? I mean, because let's face it, yes, death is a reality and death is an enemy, but there wouldn't be any death if it was not part of God's sovereign plan and the overall picture. So the question then became for me, are you willing to get the answer to that question that God gives, which is, why did this happen? Because in the larger picture of God's overall plan for me, my, my family, my wife, uh, in the world in general, this is what he decreed to happen. And that should be enough for you. That's not to say you shouldn't struggle. That's just not to say that it's not painful and difficult, but it's like the answer that Job received. I mean, as I understand it, that was Job's answer. This has happened because God is God. Uh, it's not that you did anything wrong. I mean, that's another thing that you can ask yourself a lot when you go through something like this. Uh, is that what did I do to deserve this and all these sort of questions? Um, and ultimately, we don't know. I could be completely mistaken about my take on it, but as I understood what was happening and how I came to deal with it is the fact that in his divine providence and sovereign will, God has decreed this for my, my wife and I, and maybe in some broad sense as a test, if you really say you believe in me and that I'm sovereign, here's an opportunity for you to walk that path. It may not be the one you would have chosen, right. but um, so. Yeah, it, it comes down to walking by faith, not by sight, because it would be very easy to decide uh, this book is a betrayal. It's not true. Look what happened to me. But I, I think that's probably what the scripture talks about, about joy as opposed to happiness. Mm. If you both after the period of shock, grief, or in the midst of it, recognize the sovereignty of God, then you knew you weren't the one making these plans, these decisions of how it's going to turn out. God was right. Yes. So Michelle, let me ask you this. Did you get a chance to hold Andrew? Yes. Yes. What was that There's, like? It was hard because at 18 weeks, a baby doesn't look like, you know, a baby that you're used to seeing. It was quiet. I'm glad that that happened because I think that's an important part of the grieving process. And especially now there is a correction. He was only alive about 20 minutes after birth. And I right. think for me, I just couldn't see, I mean, they offered, they said, do you want to hold him? Because they, after giving birth, they took him away, probably cleaned him up and then said, okay, do you want to see him? Do you want to hold him? And I did hesitate because I wasn't sure what I was going to see. It was kind of scary, you know, yeah. but I'm glad they offered and I'm glad we did because I couldn't think I don't want my son to die in the arms of a stranger or in some back room. That's just awful. God's giving us this little opportunity to have just a few minutes with this baby that I, you know, otherwise will not be able to parent. Right. So um, we did. So Charles, let me ask you this. Um, if you're anything like my husband, sometimes my husband wants to suppress what he needs because the role of protector and I'm going to take care of my wife comes to the forefront. Did you feel as though you had to hold off your own feelings because not only were you dealing with a child that was going to obviously die, but deal with your wife? Um, what was that like for you as the dad? You know, th th there was no guidebook for this. 
th th there was no instruction manual about, okay, under this circumstance, this is what you deal with. That, that's sort of what brought this up in our previous discussion on the last podcast is the fact that sometimes God smacks you in the face with realistic situations where you don't have time to turn to Burkhoff's systematic theology and look that up. And it's the same with this. I mean, th this, this happened so unexpectedly and so rather quickly that we both were there in the room when they brought him in. And I have a very clear memory of him sort of gasping or giving uh, like his last breath and how devastating that was for both of us. And, and it, I think it brought us closer together. We, and, and separately, but also together, we had to deal with this as, as a husband and wife in the rather challenging circumstances in which we were in. But no, I can't say that, okay, okay I've got to hold off on my own feelings because I've got to care for my wife. I mean, I obviously was concerned for Michelle, but like I said, we were both just sort of knocking around in the dark in some way and trying to realize what has just happened to us. You know, and with all the um, rhetoric of the abortion industry, my body, my choice, it's a blob of tissue. You both have a very strong image that that is such a lie. And I don't imagine anything would ever be able to alter what you know to be true, not only because God said what God says, but you experienced it firsthand. Well, and I want to add too, one thing I wasn't, well, all that wasn't expected, but we had a death certificate. We were asked if we were going to claim him on our tax exemption. We had to provide, um, we went through the funeral home for a grave site. So this is at 18 weeks. And, you know, we have his footprints with us. So how they can even imagine that they can do abortions at that stage and later is just beyond me. Yeah. How can the government say, well, we'll issue a death certificate and you can take him off for your taxes at the same time, but it's okay if someone else, because of how they feel about it, they can go ahead and take his life. Right. You know, I have a personal story. I believe I was pregnant twice before I actually gave birth, but it was early on in the pregnancy. I hadn't done a test, but I knew something was different. And for the second occurrence, I remember being um, at a friend's house that I went to after I had seen the doctor and another friend came and she came and she comforted me and she said, you know, I just came back from having an abortion. Boy, I know how you feel. And I remember being so angry. And this was even before I was a Christian going, you have no idea how I feel right now. You mm -hmm. just got rid of someone and I lost someone. And it, it made it very clear for me long before I professed Christ that the same thing hadn't happened to each of us. We, we right. had experienced different things. So let me ask you this. So Andrew is born, he dies, you bury him. But it's not like, okay, so now life stops. Charles is still in seminary. You still have a job you don't like very much. You're still married. Were you hesitant about getting pregnant again? Well, the doctors had thought maybe this was just a random thing. They didn't necessarily think it was going to happen again. We had, we had a pretty large 
medical bill we had to pay off. We didn't have insurance. So, you know, our, our goals were to get healthy, to kind of let grief take its time, to pay off the hospital bill, and then we would think about, you know, getting pregnant again. I did get pregnant about a year later. Well, actually, it was less than that with Mary Grace. And I was about 12 weeks in and the doctor said, you know what, I think you need to quit work and be on bed rest, which we weren't expecting at all because we were kind of, you know, my income was kind of important during that time. So um, he said, okay. So I was on bed rest successfully till about week 20. The doctors were even coming to our house because they didn't want me moved. I started having, going into labor. By the time I got to the hospital, it looked like they might be able to stop labor and do some things. I had emergency surgery, which didn't go well um, for a variety of reasons. But at the end of the that traumatic day, the pregnancy was intact. I was kind of holding together. It looked like maybe the Lord was going to perform some kind of miracle. Mm -hmm. um, but then less than 24 hours, I came down with um, what we found out later was pneumonia and was in intensive care for about a week. But still, the pregnancy was hanging on. They eventually sent me home, but I did go back into labor once I got home. And so at 24 weeks, I went back to the emergency room. And at that point, they said, there's nothing more we can do. We've done everything we possibly can. We see the baby's head. She's, she's coming. And you have to let us know, do you want us to put her on life support? Because she'll need a ventilator. Or, you know, you know, they ran through the scenarios at given her time frame and how long she'd been in the womb and everything that I'd been going through and all the medications to get out of the pneumonia and everything else. They said, you know, what do you want to do? And we said, well, we want to do everything we can to give her a fighting chance, which we did. Um, but she really, she struggled. She did not do well. You know, there are a lot of tried of interventions. Um, her different, you know, her kidneys started to fail, her heart, you know, all kinds of things where after a couple of days in the NICU, they came to us and said, we're having to bag her. The ventilator's not working. Her, her organs are failing. We think you need to take her off the ventilator and let her go. I see. Charles, what was that like for you? Yeah, that was a real, uh, I mean, the first episode was a challenging thing enough, but it's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> we're, we're, we're going through this again. I can't imagine. Um, in this case, because the pregnancy was much further along, the baby was much more developed. Um, it, it had an even greater impact, I think, uh, in terms of the emotional side of it. And um, it, it was a real struggle. I mean, we had in this case, I, I can't remember about Andrew Knox, Michelle, you'll have to help me, but I know with Mary Grace, we had, we were members of an Orthodox Presbyterian church at the time. And the pastor there was very, very uh, gracious and helpful as were the whole congregation. We had a graveside service 
And let me just insert something here before I forget, because in some ways this is uh, a part of God's overall blessing in this whole thing. As Michelle mentioned earlier, we intentionally wanted to go to a hospital that did not provide abortion. So listeners can infer that was a Roman Catholic hospital. Uh, I'm not going to mention names in terms of the doctors and the practices and all that, but it was just amazing how the Lord used that decision in particular uh, because um, both of our babies were buried in a Catholic cemetery, I'll just say in the greater Philadelphia area. And the second case with Mary Grace, because she was at least two days in the neonatal intensive care unit, that's expensive um, medical treatment. And, you know, we barely had enough money to, you know, pay for seminary. I was working a security guard job. Michelle was working at a place. So uh, money was extremely tight and we didn't know what we were going to do. And by God's grace, that hospital forgave our medical debt. Um, you know, we were encouraged to ask for some sort of reduction by the deacons at the church we were members of at the time. And the hospital came back after a week or so and said, eh, you don't know anything. Please don't worry about it. Wow. Yeah. So that, that was, a, but yeah, in, in, in the case of the, the second um, pregnancy and birth, it, it was a lot more hard hitting. And at this point, you're just sort of numb. It's like, well, <laughs> I don't know what else to do. I, I don't know quite how to handle all this other than just to keep moving and thinking somehow this makes sense on some level with the Lord. Now we hear the word dominion thrown around a lot. And sometimes I think people think dominion and working to fulfill the dominion mandate is this grandiose thing. From the way I look at things, Charles and Michelle, you were doing dominion work through both those periods of early parenting because you were proclaiming that which is true. These are not blobs of tissue. These are not inconvenience. The bills are high. We have to pay them off, but it's no different if the child was 10. In other words, you were looking at these people as your children. And I think that uh, if, there's, if there's any way you build up a spiritual muscle, I think you guys were in boot camp and beyond. Well, I definitely felt that, especially with the second. It took much longer for me to be able to grieve and kind of come out of that um, just because it was a second terrible thing after, you know, everything else that seemed to not go well. But then it was, you know, so many people were praying and it looked like God was going to do this wonderful miracle that I could write about. Wow, look at this. And, you know, after this emergency surgery that bombed, but then eventually worked. And then after the doctor calls my husband at two o'clock and says, your wife might not make it if you don't get here. Um, and then I got over that. I mean, it was just like, okay, God, you're going to do something great. And then 24 weeks, it's like, you couldn't let her live. If she would have been 28, her chances of survival or 26 would have been so much higher, but she was right at that point. And it's like, I don't get you, God. I really don't. I mean, we're trying to do everything you want. And you've done all these wonderful things, getting us through this emergency surgery and then getting me through the pneumonia and getting out of intensive care. And it looks like things are going to be okay. And then in one day, it's all gone. Right. And it's like, you know, and I really struggled with God, I know you're sovereign. And maybe I wish you weren't, because I also know that because you're sovereign, 
you did this. And I don't, you know, there's a part of me that doesn't, I can't get this. What she didn't do anything wrong is she died. So it, it was, it was a hard struggle. Sometimes I'm like, I wish I wasn't a Christian, because I would have just <laughs> said, you know, this would have been just some random thing, you know, it happens in the world. But knowing that I am, and that God, this is a part of God's plan. It was just some days were just like really hard. Yeah. And you know, you two are married. And so you're one flesh and you're going through this together. Although now some people might know what not know what I'm about to share. But you see, pregnancy continues because there's a hormonal shift in a woman's body. And after you deliver, those hormones aren't present the same way they were before. And your body was getting ready to nourish the child. So after all this, as hard as it was, it's not like your body didn't start probably producing milk or that you didn't have these big hormonal shifts, which any woman who's gone through a delivery knows if she's got someone to help her, that there will be this postpartum um, fluctuation in moods and hormones. And sometimes without guidance, you can think you're going crazy. So God had you experience what anybody would experience. And I think the story ended up just as God wanted it. And it did glorify him. Um, He did write a good story, but I'm not sure you and Charles could have appreciated it then the way you do now. Yeah, I think that's correct. I mean, you you just need, you need time. Grief has its own way of working out in each individual person. And you just need time. Now that, you know, the time has elapsed, I can look back and I see how God has worked and how he was using that to prepare us for things later in life. You just adjust to those things and, and you can be thankful that he was with you and he didn't forsake you because you were angry or were grieving and weren't the super Christian that you thought you were, that God still held you by your hand and he brought you through times that you just didn't think you could get through. So I'm glad you mentioned that super Christian idea, because I'm not even sure what that is and (laughs) whether it's a good thing to even consider such a thing. Um, I know that by and large, people do not know how to deal with grieving people. I knew a woman who carried her pregnancy to term and the baby died. And there were people who I think probably meant well, who told her, don't worry, God will give you another one. Hmm. And her response was, this isn't like a faucet that broke that I can go to the hardware store and just get another one. I was emotionally, physically, spiritually attached to this child. But I think sometimes people don't know how to relate to a grieving person. So, Charles, I'll start with you. How did you not like it as people, how they would approach you afterwards? And who were the people who actually gave you comfort? What were the different approaches and which ones now do you say, no, I, we really appreciated that and the other one, not so much? You know, I'm glad you asked that question, not just for the reasons that you stated, but it, it's uh, several things are coming back to my memory from low those many years ago. And one of them in particular is this. At the time, 
as I said, I was in seminary at Westminster Theological Seminary, sort of, you know, the the headquarters of Reformed theology in the United States. Dr. Van Til taught there, all the rest of it. And so um, there were a number of people and churches in the area that, you know, really majored in the, 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 the glories of the Reformed faith. And there were one or two guys in particular who were pastors that I knew fairly well, and they were generally aware of what we were going through, especially with the second pregnancy. And then there were a few other Reformed-type churches in the area that had sort of a bad reputation as not being truly Reformed and, you know, kind of silly acting in their worship and all the rest of it. But I will never forget that I'm pretty sure it was the second pregnancy, but the pastor of one of those less than truly Reformed churches that we had visited just a few times, he came up to the hospital and prayed with Michelle. The, the truly Reformed guy never showed up. And I didn't ask either one of them, but it, it was a stark uh, lesson in people who took the faith seriously in some very practical ways. I'm not, I'm not downgrading the importance of doctrinal precision, but uh, it has to look like something other than just what's in a te textbook. And um, the other thing was, I, I don't recall anybody giving me advice or saying anything that I thought was just trite and nonsensical. Everybody in the church we were members of, uh, the students in the seminary who knew what we were dealing with, and our seminary professors were all very supportive in, in many, many different ways. Well, that's good. That's good. I know sometimes people don't know what to say, and they avoid grieving people. And from my own experience, my mom passed away when I was in high school, and I could see that my classmates didn't know what to say, so they they solved the problem by not coming and talking to me. And I remember one time being in the the girls' lavatory, and they couldn't see that I was behind a stall, and I heard two people talking about me, about how sad it is, and they didn't know what to say. And I remember hiding in there until they left because I didn't really feel up to telling them how they were going to deal with me. But my experience personally, and then with other people I've dealt with, the grieving person appreciates you listening, not so much lecturing, but right. you allowing them to share what they want to share and sometimes just to cry with them. And if you'll allow me to follow up on a couple of other things relating to that, the, the church we were members of at the time. Uh, we happened to do, and I don't remember where this was in the, in the process, but they did uh, a Sunday school class on the subject of suffering, and we used an R.C. Sproul video series, and there was a woman in the church whose husband had been murdered. Uh, he was a salesman. He was somewhere, and some guy showed up at the, somewhere and, and killed him, and I remember her telling this story that of all the, uh, the outpouring of, of support that the thing that affected her in the most positive way was that the man who was pastor of the church at the time, when he found out, he went to the home where she and her husband had lived, and she said, I opened the door, and there was Dr. So-and-so, and he walked in. He didn't say a word. He gave me a big hug. He turned, and he left, and she said, that meant more to me than anything else anybody tried to say or tried to do. The other thing is this, how the Lord I think in some way prepared me in ministry to deal with uh, people grieving. In my first pastorate uh, in a fairly small church, one of the things I had to deal with early on right out of seminary was a family in that church that had two children at the time, 
and it was a July 4th weekend celebration, uh, not at the church. These, these folks had gone up to uh, a lake in the area with family and friends, and I believe the boy was five or six years old, but he drowned. Their son, one of their sons drowned at this July 4th thing. And I want to tell you, again, this is another one of these areas where, when, especially when you're right out of seminary, and you get the phone call, and this is what you're told that has happened. You, you right away, unless you've got some borrowed capital to deal with, to draw on, you've got to come up with something to give these people some kind of hope and a, a sympathetic ear. And by God's grace, I was able to minister to them, I think, in a positive way, uh, not trying to say, well, I know exactly what you're going through, because I didn't. I mean, in some ways I did. But it, losing a five-year-old in a drowning accident is a very different thing than what Michelle and I dealt with. Right, right. Michelle, so I happen to know, because I know the rest of the story, that your doctor or doctors figured that part of the issue with losing both ch um, children had to do with an anatomical correction that could be made. And as God would ordain it, you did have two other pregnancies that resulted in two daughters. Explain a little bit about maybe your hesitancy to announce these pregnancies when you discovered them. And what was the process like spiritually, not knowing if the same kind of thing would happen? Well, uh, this, the next pregnancy was um, we after we lost Mary Grace, um, we did go to some other specialists down in Philadelphia to get some more testing to get an idea of what we could do for a different outcome. Again, once we were kind of ready emotionally, financially to try to get pregnant again, we kind of had a game plan. We knew I wouldn't be working, that I'd have to have surgery around week 12 to close up the cervix. Um, that I'd be on bed rest. So, you know, we thought we were kind of prepared for what was going to happen. The doctors, again, were very supportive and were going to come out to the house, even when I was on bed rest, and check me out. And with that pregnancy, I started to have problems around week 20 even though I'd had the surgery and a stitch had been put in, but it looked like it was coming out. So I was hospitalized. Um, it was Labor Day weekend, and I stayed in the hospital until the middle of January when I delivered. Wow. Um, and I was upside down in a bed, <laughs> uh, unable to even lift my head up to eat or get up to go to the bathroom or you know, I don't know, it's like a thousand pills later with various drugs to kind of keep me from going into labor. And it, it was another very traumatic experience that we kept saying, I don't know, Lord, whatever. <laughs> I don't know what you're going to do. And we're just going to take every day as it comes. Love this baby, whether it's just going to be in the womb or out or, you know, whatever, um, and just trust you. But I know that there were several conversations with the doctor when I was in the hospital, and they were thinking, you're never going to make it that long. 
here's some other medical procedures that we could do, you know, for the next one. And I, they were just crazy things like, you know, uh, transfer of embryos. And I was like, no, no, if this is it, you know, if this doesn't work, then God's plan is not probably for me to have children in the natural way. Either we adopt or it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But she made it, correct? <laughs> but she made it. We made it to uh, 38 weeks. And uh, it's like two contractions and boom. <laughs> there she was. There are some okay. women who will be very jealous about two contractions and then boom. But you certainly got your stripes before that. Well, I, let, let me add that we were very, very fortunate and very blessed that the, um, the nursing staff at that hospital uh, we're just above and beyond. I mean, everybody had, a, they, you know, the big term nowadays is stakeholders. Well, I want to tell you, the, this OBGYN practice that we were connected with, the, the nurses at that hospital, uh, they were just amazingly good. And um, they, they got to where they called the room Michelle was in for low those many weeks. Well, that's Michelle's room. Even after <laughs> she left, that was Michelle's room. I see. I see. All right. And so that daughter is how old today? She'll be 30. Your next birthday. All right. And was she healthy and, you know, normal by most people's standards? Yeah. She was yeah. in NICU for a little bit. They wanted to watch her just because I had had, had to be on such a huge amount of medication. Mm -hmm. But um, other than jaundice, which she and my other daughter had as well, um, they turned out to be pretty healthy. So, And then what was her sister's? pregnancy with you and birth like was it similar that you had to take precautionary actions well with the fourth with caroline that pregnancy was kind of a surprise that was the lord's idea um we had moved we weren't you know around any of the other doctors or nurses we were you know 800 miles away that pregnancy was Physically was the best of all of them. Emotionally, it was extremely difficult because I had a three-year-old at home. I had a doctor who really wasn't sympathetic in a small town where you couldn't switch to a different doctor. I did have a specialist who performed the surgery very differently than the other group, and that made it a little risky if I had gone into preterm labor. Um, that would have been a real problem, but I did have to be on bed rest and um, they did have to do a C-section, but all things considered it, you know, physically it was a bit a much better pregnancy than any of the others. And at what uh, week into your pregnancy did they do the C-section? 38 weeks. 38 weeks. Okay. So Charles, I have to ask you, um, I suppose seminary isn't a cakewalk for a single guy who's just studying. You weren't just a single guy just studying. You were a husband, and you were a husband who had to learn how to, at least it sounds like those times that she was in the hospital, that you were not only caring for yourself and feeding yourself and visiting her, but you were studying I guess you wouldn't recommend that as a way to choose to do it. What do you think that whole experience taught you? Well, I shared with you some of the things that uh, I was able to draw on in pastoral ministry. 
and and really that whole as i say that that was one of the things i think the lord was using to show me that my plans for you are a little bit different than maybe what you are thinking because i was really more interested in academic pursuits i wanted to get a master of arts degree and then go somewhere else and do a phd in something and, and teach in a seminary or a bible college uh, there were a number of things that from a, a practical standpoint i knew guys who had been at the seminary for quite a long time, still working on their doctoral degrees, and the cost was skyrocketing even then back in the uh, mid to late 80s and early 90s. But the kind of experiences that the Lord was bringing into our lives was geared much more toward preparing someone for pastoral ministry than for an academic career. Mm -hmm. And that really wasn't hard for me to um, admit or acquiesce to because it, it was what it was. And uh, it wasn't what I had originally dialed up for myself, but that's what the Lord did. And again, I think this is a test of, well, do you really believe in God's sovereignty? Yeah, seminary is, for most people, not a cakewalk. I mean, I knew guys uh, in seminary who pretty much it appeared anyway that their lives consisted of going to class and studying theology and then throwing, throwing frisbees in the afternoon. You, know? <laughs> you weren't um, doing that. No, I wasn't doing that. Michelle wasn't doing that. At one point, I had two jobs. Uh, Michelle was working a couple of different jobs. It, it was a challenging time, but I think that, you know, and everybody else, everyone has their challenges of one sort or another if they answer the call to pastoral ministry. I mean, just the New Testament witness of someone like Paul is that this is not an easy path, and um, the Lord doesn't call us to uh, a bed of roses all the time by any means. So I'm very grateful in a, in a retrospective sense for the experiences we had that certainly prepared both of us in that sense for the kind of work that the Lord has called me to do now going on 30 plus years. So there's this misconception that when people marry, what keeps them together is, you know, that initial spark, that romance. And regardless of whether or not that was present with you guys before these experiences, it's very hard to look at what you went through with all your children during the pregnancy and right immediately afterwards as being romantic. It's not the Hallmark movie. I think the script would be refused going, huh? No, no, we need a Hallmark movie. We need something fun and happy. But I'd like, Michelle, you to talk first in terms of how these experiences and others since then solidified your marriage and how marriage, the institution of marriage, kept you guys together when there could have been times where he doesn't understand what I'm going through or she doesn't understand what I'm going through. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I think when you lose a child, you know, you're just going to grieve differently and I think there's a lot of marriages, I think statistics bear that out, that don't survive some of these times when there's a real tragedy and a loss of a child in a marriage. And I think both of us going into the marriage had this pretty firm idea that marriage is, is instituted by God and that he brought us together for a purpose, that we were better together than we were apart. And so... You know, just having that as something that's rock solid, that no matter what, we're going to make this work. And recognizing that, yeah, there's going to be days where I'm still feeling such an amount of grief, and yet he's watching a movie and enjoying himself. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, there's, 
you're just going to grieve differently and at different times. But just having that foundation that um, it's not about butterflies and happy thoughts all the time, but about that God's bringing two people together for a purpose and that everything that happens to us is to further that purpose and that better days are ahead and you just kind of work through it, trusting that God's going to use those differences in a positive way. I mean, it's even now, I mean, we've been married almost 36 years and there are days that you're like, why in the world did I do this? <laughs> well, I was like, crazy? I mean, that's only, you know, you're two sinners. There's going to be days where it's not fun, you know, and you're getting on each other's nerves and you're not, you're talking at cross purposes. And, but at the end of the day, God's brought you together for a reason and trusting in him, you'll work it through, work things out. Well, Charles, I'm really surprised you're just not a perfect guy. Um, you, do you want to add anything to what Michelle just said? Yeah, I think that, uh, yes, I, I will be the first to admit I'm not a perfect guy. Uh, and I'm not a perfect wife. No, that's I not do, true. I she do. is. <laughs> but, see, I don't know you as well as I know Charles, and so, of course, I had to give him a jab in the side. <laughs> I remember many years ago hearing um, a Russian Orthodox priest make a comment, an old Russian proverb or saying was that, uh, you don't really know anyone until you've eaten a pound of salt together. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but what I took for it to mean is that, you know, you, you've, you've struggled together. It, it, there's, there's, there's a bond there. And um, I don't know, it's been about a year or so ago, Michelle and I were talking and she made this comment. I keep reminding her of it because I, I thought it was so amusing. Is that, <laughs> I knew you know, it was coming. <laughs> we have a history together. You know, what she meant was, is that we built a life together. And I think these kind of experiences are the cement that, on, on, in God's providence, if you know this is what He has ordained, it, it does make you stronger. I think it's part of the, the for me anyway, the the rather surprising overall experience of, you know, a, a marriage where you are with the same person by covenant bond for the rest of your life, and I think that one of the surprising things about that. And, and that this is built and fed by these kind of experiences or something, whatever the Lord ordains for somebody else, is that you, you're, you really lose yourself. In other words, the, the person you were before you were married, that person gradually just sort of disappears. And just in the same way, it's sort of like when you become a Christian, you know, the old self dies and falls away. It doesn't maybe, it takes a sanctification process for that to work. After you've been married for a number of years, or it doesn't matter the ups or the downs or whatever, you realize, wait a minute, you know, we have something together that is unique, and it's a, a singular thing that we are one person, so to speak, that is different and, and bigger than just each of us separately. So, I think that's really true, and couples could never imagine when they stand with the guests there and the minister, whoever's performing the ceremony, better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and in health. I don't think most have any concept how sick sick can be, how worse worse can be. Um, it's just one of those things that if you're grounded in a marriage with Christ as the third string in that strand, uh, that it's a covenant of three, 
then you have the, the thing that will sustain you. I remember when my husband and I were married seven years and we were at a frozen yogurt shop and we were sort of, you know, having this big smile on our face. And when we ordered our frozen yogurt, it was like we're celebrating. And there was this old couple that asked us, what are you celebrating? And, and very proudly, we said, oh, we're celebrating seven years. And I, I can't remember if it was 50 or 60 years. I seem to think it was 60 years. And they said, well, we've been married 60 years. And we were like very impressed. And he looked at my husband and said, and you won't even know her till 25 years into marriage. <laughs> <laughs> well, how, how long have you and Ford been married? Um, come November, it will be 46 years. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. You know, he, yeah. he knows me now from 25 past, but it's really true. And it, it's the sort of thing that, you know, does love sustain marriage or does marriage sustain love? I'm convinced marriage sustains love. Well, and I think the important thing, and what I try to stress in the premarital counseling that I have done over the years is that that's that, that very point, or put it this way, it's the covenant you make with that other person, this solemn bond. And I remember I used to use some R.C. Sproul videotapes for and his, his uh, on Christian marriage. And he made the point, there's, there's a reason why in our faith, a man and a woman stand before witnesses and make this covenant pledge to each other, as opposed to something whispered in the dark where nobody else is around. Yeah, I'll stay with you for the rest of your life. But they're not the same. Uh, scenario, but you realize that the thing that is the most central is that covenant bond. And what I've, what, the way I've tried to put that across in some cases with the people that I've counseled, that I'll say to the husband, let me ask you to imagine a scenario where, okay, seven years, 10 years from now, you know, you wake up at three o'clock in the morning and you look over and there's your wife with the, the beer can rollers in her hair and she's snoring. <laughs> and you think, I don't just don't feel the way I used to. I said, what are you going to do with that? Where are you going to go with that? You know, and sometimes they have a good answer. Sometimes they don't, they can't answer. But the point is that doesn't matter. I made a covenant commitment for better, for worse, sickness and health and all the rest of the wording. But that's the main thing. I, I've been preaching through the book of Exodus and we've come to the part where, you know, Moses has been on Mount Sinai and the people now have gone crazy and they're worshiping the golden bull calf. You know, the Lord says, look, I'm just going to start over with you. You know, I'm heck with these people. And Moses reminds him, look, wait a minute, you made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's a remarkable thing because he could have said, fine, let's, let's get it going. Yeah, they're bad people. But he reminded God, I mean, you know, in the general sense, that this is the covenant bond that we have here. And I think that, uh, that is also very, very central in marriage. Yes, indeed. I remember that when we were first married, neither one of us were Christians, and when we would have a fight... I would look at him and say, if you don't like it, there's the door. And he'd say, no way. If you don't like it, there's the door. So <laughs> even at the time, neither one of us was willing to be the one to walk out the door. And when we, be when we came to faith and renewed our, our marriage in a Christian ceremony with witnesses, that expression never surfaced again. There was never that there's the door because we recognized that something was much more important than how we felt at that given time. Well, and I, I meant to say something earlier in talking about the issue of suffering and the challenges we face in life generally, but say in terms of the Christian life specifically, or even in the issue of pastoral ministry, I would like to 
commend to our listeners the seven-part series that Mark Restuni wrote about his father's life. It was serialized in Faith for All of Life magazine because if all anyone knows about R.J. Rushdoony is from the Institutes of Biblical Law or some of his other great, great works, you don't know half the story of the, the struggles and the things that that man endured as a father, as a husband, and as a pastor. And I think it's a, a remarkable story of how God worked in his life in, in, in bringing him through various challenges that uh, must have been uh, unimaginably difficult. So, And uh, I would uh, add to that. Um, yeah, and I'll put links to that. But long after Dr. Rushduni passed away, which is now 20 years, his son Mark found a collection of poems mm-hmm. that Rush had written. And they were never, I don't think, intended for public consumption because they were sometimes written on a napkin or a utility bill on the back of a utility bill. But when you read through the poems, and it's the book that they were compiled in is called The Luxury of Words. And so it's according to decade. And even though the poems stand on their own, once you understand what was happening in Rush's life, and then you see some of those poems, you get a sense of just how deep his reliance was on God to see him through in his calling, that his calling was what was paramount. It wasn't how he felt or whether or not this was convenient. And I think your story, which let me just say, I'm very grateful that both of you were willing to dig up things that maybe you don't think about every single day to share, but that your growth as people happened as a result of suffering and it strengthened your faith. So we shouldn't go out and look for suffering because we're bored. But when God brings it to you, um, it may take a while to appreciate it, but it's a blessing, not a curse. Absolutely. I totally agree. Well, Michelle, thank you again. Charles, thank you again. And listeners, we'd love to hear your reaction to our conversation. And if there are other things that you would like us to discuss in the future, we are reachable at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.